Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had. And I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design, still my favorite is the built structure and interiors and years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listen to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Mark Benner from Mark Benner Architects, and he's Chicago-based. Now, Mark has a pretty fascinating story. Whilst he specializes in luxury homes, he comes from a background where he's been a carpenter and he's done design build. He's worked in the industrial side of the business as well, and his firm focuses on doing luxury homes, and there's a twist. He's a guy with a huge heart and sees a social conscience of how do I supply and communicate with architecture beyond just one end of the market. And we can talk about some affordable housing and things that go on as well with that. And Mark has certainly got the runs on the board to be able to inspire you and give you thoughts around what the future of architecture looks like and how it communicates to us as human beings. Mark, welcome to the show. 
Thanks, Adrian. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, man, me too. It's really cool. Let's kick off. I want to go back. This is a pretty standard kind of question that you'll get asked on any recording that you do is, is how the hell did you end up doing this to start with? And maybe there's a, a point when a lot of people go, well, this is what it was for me. So how did you, you had a, a carpentry part in the background, but where did it all start when you were like, you know, a kid, what was the part that took you down this path? I grew up in a family where we did a lot of things DIY style. I, I, I remember as I think I was maybe four or five years old, Christmas time, I was looking through the window in my basement, in our, our basement house, and I saw my uncle and my father putting together what was going to be my gift, which was a workbench. And it had all <laughs> the tools, vices. And so I got a very early start with hands-on with tools. And that was that was kind of the inspiration. And that, that just continued to go. So we we did a lot of work around the house. If I, if I broke, if I kicked through the drywall, I had to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> no story around that. No story around that. <laughs> so why was your family so hands-on? Why were they so DIY? I, 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 my father had a big part in that. He was, he was always a hands-on type and, you know, we would, we would design things around the house and build them. So my graduation party was held in the, in the, the, the proposed deck layout. We had strings showing where the deck was going to be built, but we didn't get around to building the deck. So we just set up tables in the strings and we knew that eventually there'd be a deck there. Yeah, uh, I love and, it. In in time, there was. <laughs> it's so funny how we get to go to do something or become some, you know, part of something. My I lived in, as I grew up, and sort of close to a town, but just, just on the verge of it. And we had a chook farm that was across the road from us that sold eggs and, you know, not just sold them there, but made egg production. And we had you know, a creek in our own backyard and we had, farms around us and stuff like that and my dad is a fine artist but my dad it was quite a steep sort of section he terraced it all and built rock walls and I learned the value of escape was the first thing I learned the value of get up early and get out before you get caught (laughs) and then on the other side of it I learned the value of hard work because I wasn't quick enough to escape often enough and Mm. we would spend our weekends mixing concrete and lugging rocks around and building rock walls to hold up the banks of the terracing. It sounds very familiar. I, I, I was involved with lots of church product projects and restoring old homes. We made, we turned one home into a, a tea room. Yeah, and so yeah, I, I got involved with that very early and, and jo- actually joined a very small construction company. I think there were three of us. And so I was a young high school kid learning every job there was to be to to be learned, and, and it was probably pretty dangerous too. <laughs> We're taking on a lot of the things that we probably should have had additional help, but you know, you, you learn that, to get it done. I was about to say I think that's part of the journey, but if you've got all your fingers and toes still, and you know, yeah, everything's still attached, <laughs> then then you probably did fairly well. But it's a it it is a fascinating journey, like. My dad is a fine artist. I'm like, well, how did he know how to do it? But he grew up in a in a family where, like my dad's 95 this year. He grew up in a family where there was no resources. He was born around oh, 1920-something. So he was a young kid in the Great Depression. And 
so everything was usable and how did you do it yourself? There was always this, how do you do things? And that carried through to me. And it was my understanding of how you looked at everything was, can you break it down into pieces that you could do yourself? So true. So true. And I think that informs design very quickly because you go, you're not just thinking of the pretty picture. You're actually thinking of the construction and you're thinking of how it gets done. I always laugh, you know, when we draw something and you need a skyhawk to hold it up, it's like a total abandonment of any responsibility. I just want that, please. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. In, in architectural school, it was somewhat limiting because I, I always had constructability in, in the background. And not every not every architectural design project is is really meant to be built. Well, it is. Ultimately, it is. <laughs> but maybe not. <laughs> yeah. But there were some pretty wild designs by my classmates that I I just knew I couldn't couldn't be built, so I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna take the time to to explore that option. I think that's a really fascinating point as well because there is. I was talking to a ex professor from Yale yesterday, and she was telling me. You know, I was saying to her about when you do at architectural school when people do studio. And, you know, there's very few boundaries. There's a brief, but there's very few boundaries. You have to create the boundaries. And when Mm -hmm. you understand, say, the construction, the level that you understand that too creates the boundaries that you're prepared to generally play in. And then you, you go beyond that. And that can be really limiting. So you've got to be able to bust that for yourself. It's so true. I mean, just the simple example is I had an awareness because I'd been in the field that a you know a two by twelve could span only so long, and so I would design structures that would would recognize that, and I they were they were buildable. My my classmate my classmates at Lawrence Tech, you know, they were doing twenty thirty foot spans, and you know someday they'll figure out how to make that happen. But and they didn't <laughs> even know that a two by twelve would only do so so much, right? <laughs> Because they weren't doing it because they were informed. They were doing it because they were uninformed. Exactly. It's part of that design mentality and then being able to go, well, what is the way? I I was listening recently to a show and they were talking about, you know, the, the guys who created the domes, these, you know, domed buildings and what it took to do that when the first ones were created. Right. And somebody said, I want this dome idea and then you know the innovation and ingenuity goes to work and somebody works out what it takes to do that and if we only work with what we what we know then we don't get to push beyond the boundaries i often see this in computer generated design as well like it it it's got the pieces in there to make sure that things will go together, but that doesn't mean that the people work to the limit of their knowledge of the tool. Yeah, that that's very true. That's very true. Yeah, I, I've 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 often thought that that having a practical experience component to any architectural training would be an invaluable. I would make it a requirement, but you know, if if I were advising architectural students today, I would I would suggest they find an opportunity to to get their hands on and drive some nails, hundred percent, understanding how it puts together because yep. it's going to serve their their own understanding going forward. Well, when you think back to the olden days where architecture was, you know, an apprenticeship, and 
you went and learned it. And certainly in Germany, they have that discipline called a master carpenter. And sure, a master yeah. carpenter is as qualified as any architect by the time they're recognized as that. And they can, they've solved enough practical problems that then it's just how they got the release into the creative side of so that both work. But I, right. I watch what I see happening and I go so often, People don't have construction knowledge. I mean, they they don't have construction knowledge and they don't know how to ask for the construction knowledge. Right. Which right. Is, I think architects have, have partly because they're they're risk averse and they don't want to get sued. They've they've drawn a bright line distinction between I'm I'm gonna show you the this is the the plan for what we're gonna do, and it's up to the builders to to figure out the constructability part of that. So there's they've intentionally created that divide. But I don't Be, think it's because of them. because of legality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. So, you 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 had a workbench when you were like five years old. I love that. <laughs> Most kids probably got a trolley or something, you know, a box <laughs> trolley or something. No, he's going to work that boy. <laughs> you want a trolley? You have to make it yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've given you the tools. <laughs> And it's real Bob the Builder style as well, which I think is, I think there's something fabulous about it. And you learn the value of working with your hands as well. Absolutely. So then you took off down this route of obviously being very practically minded and analytically minded. And then what made you go, well, I'll continue down this route with architecture because you could have just ended up in the build trade or you could have ended up in any number of different things that spin off from it. So why architecture? Well, I think that was the likely trajectory is that I was going to continue down a, a trades tradesman's path. One of the advantages to working in a small operation like I was in, I, I got some opportunities that maybe other carpenters might not have received. And that was, so the boss of the company said, Hey, I've got, I've got this opportunity, this house is coming up and I know you're an architectural school. So would you like to draw it? And I jumped at the chance. I was just working part-time. And so it was, it was a very simple house, not much of a design pro- project or, or challenge, but it, g- it gave me the opportunity to start putting pencil to paper at the time and got it all done and, and submitted. And then I, you know, I, was, I was kind of balancing that between architectural school and I, I was going back to work the work in the, in the field yeah. on holidays and weekends and things. And I, so I, I returned, I think it was for a Christmas break. And my the, my boss was just so excited to see me. He said, "I got to show you something. I got to show you something." So he led me over to where they'd, they'd framed the deck of the first floor, and he led me over to where the stairs to the basement would would be. And he said, "Take a look." And I looked, and in, in the opening there was a steel beam going right through the middle of the opening. And he said, "That we build everything that you draw." And I had made a mistake. <laughs> I'd drawn the beam right through the stair opening. But he was he was a savvy guy, so he knew he knew that was a mistake. So he yeah. he already poured footings, and there's but he had the steel guy put the steel in, just obstructing so the stairs. Yeah. So I would know I would learn that lesson, and you know that later that afternoon they torched it out, and you know everything was good to go. But I haven't drawn a steel beam through an op- a stair opening again. Oh God, I tell you, I've got a, a a story that's somewhat similar. I drew a house, a renovation for a house quite a few years ago and the builder rings me up and when I say quite a few probably I don't know maybe 15 years or more ago the builder rings me up and I'd never drawn the steel beams of course that the engineer had drawn the steel beams 
Mm-hmm. I'd drawn the structure of what we were going to do. And Builder rings me up and says, could you come to site? And I'm like, yeah, sure I can. So, you know, I'm excited about it. Off I go down to site and he goes, so you've got this bathroom here and <laughs> you've got this steel beam perimeter around here, which is carrying down to here. And you've got a sewer pipe. Where would you like me to put it? <laughs> and I'm like, right, so it can't go through that steel beam, can it? Nope, it can't. <laughs> right then. Okay, let's get creative. And, you know, one of the things that it really was a, a great lesson in that I had never taken the steel workshop drawings I'd looked across the engineering, but of course, it just showed details and beam sizes. It didn't It didn't show me shop drawings, and I'd never seen the shop drawings that the builder had got for the steelwork. And if I had, God knows what I've, I'd have even had the knowledge to have been able to really understand where the pieces were going to cause me a problem. Mm-hmm. But I was... My my dilemma was, is not only getting it through a steel beam, my dilemma was that I was going to have a sewer pipe from a flushing toilet running through the living room. And being on site, I solved that problem, but it took a bit of doing. And it took the plumber, myself, and the builder to do it. And it was a great, I suppose, light bulb early on, a bit like yours for the steel beam across the right. stairwell. Well, it's revealing of the shortcomings of the traditional architectural process that you have to be a very experienced carpenter, architect, to be able to interpret what what you're seeing in a two-dimensional drawing. It's not always really apparent. No, it's not at all. And I suppose that's where, you know, BIM modeling has become the the tool. I'm going to say the tool that, that should solve some of those problems. Yeah, it has a lot of that built into it. I did a demonstration to a group of probably 400 builders, architects, interior designers, really just trying to illustrate the collaborative process. I was working with a with a structural engineer in Boise, Idaho, and I was in a, a showroom at the Mart in Chicago, showing these making mistakes on purpose yes. uh, to to demonstrate that. So we were able and and BIM would would show us the, actually do the clash detection and highlight where a steel beam and a plumbing element were in conflict. Yep. And that's just something we don't have in a traditional process. But 400 people got to see, it's it's just that obvious when you when you use a BIM solution. Yeah, that it, that it, it, it shows up and that's the value of it, Yeah, it, that it does show up. And ideally, though, you don't want to leave it to the computer to find it. Right. That's the yeah. challenge. That's the challenge. And people, I mean, we're in a, a world of AI now and it's fast changing and people are relying more and more on, say, the computer to to do the, I don't want to say the, the in-depth thinking. So, yes, your BIM model might be able to find that thing, but you should have known it was going to be a problem when you were drawing it back before the BIM model. Yeah, it's conceptual. Just- yeah, yeah, as you started to describe your your plumbing conflict, I knew exactly where you were going. And a talented carpenter would do the same thing. He didn't have to look at the drawings. He can just yeah. listen to the, the the preamble and say, oh, I know where you're going. This is, yeah, yeah we got to get that drain out of there. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it's got to go somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it was either through a window or down a wall. 
<laughs> on a side note, I read a book about the the origin of the design of kitchens, and I think I think it was titled "Why is there a Why is there a, a window in front of my sink?" And it, it's a traditional yeah. element. Everyone puts a window in front of the sink. Well, the, the origins of that were because we didn't have plumbing. We didn't have running water. You, you brought a basin in, oh, and you needed a place to put out the window. That's why every sink has a window in front of. It. That's amazing. <laughs> That's so true, though. Hey, when you think that, and you think back to you know, like they used to just throw everything in the street. Exactly. Um, we haven't come far from that, have we? that's i love those kinds of things i've got i've got a friend who he is one of those people who when there's word plays that there's like in australia there's a thing called you'd hear people say fair dinkum mate and Mm. you'd say well what's fair dinkum mate mean you know and fair dinkum mate means like is that for real are you telling me the truth? Is that fair dinkum like this? What's dinkum? You, yeah, exactly. So then you go, <laughs> what's the origin of that? So the origin of it is, and I'm going to quote Alan Pease here, because Alan's the t- one who told me. So if it's wrong, please take this up with Alan Pease. If you're a listener, please take this up with Dr. Alan Pease, the world's body language expert. Um mm. But Alan's the one who told me the story with this. So back in the gold rush days in Australia, there was a massive Chinese community who came to Australia with the gold rush. And they came off the back of, I think, the Californian gold rush. So Australia was one of them in the line and New Zealand was as well. And there was there's actually a Chinese community that relates back in, in New Zealand also to the gold rush. So Mm. around in the South Island and Otago and stuff. So anyway, in typical Australian culture, there's always a bit of alcohol around. And probably in mining culture, there's also alcohol around. And Mm. Australians as a country was, of course, convict, originally convict settled. So it has a kind of a checkered history in behavior and where it came from and these kinds of things. With it, there was a law or a bylaw kind of thing that was passed in the gold fields that said that you could not trade gold or you could not purchase gold off a Chinese person if they had had more than, I think it was two drinks. And the reason is, is because in the Chinese person's DNA, not that they knew this much sophistication about it, but their tolerance to alcohol was different to the people who were English descent and their tolerance to alcohol. And we we have that still in lots of cultures. There's different cultures. Their DNA structure doesn't allow their tolerance to alcohol that other, Mm -hmm. other cultures do. With it, it was the fair drinking law. And that's why it's fair dinkum, mate, because the Chinese couldn't say their their access infliction was not drinking, it was dinking. <laughs> so the fair dinkum it's fair dinkum, mate. Yeah. Very interesting. But, and those kind of things, I love those kind of little history pieces. And I love that about throwing the basin of water full of bloody slop and <laughs> over somebody in the street as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
and you beam across the stairs. That's so classic. <laughs> so classic. I mean, so hey, what a great lesson that he actually taught it to you because yep. you could have just done it a thousand times over. And nobody yeah, he gave me a safe you. place to do that. He he was looking out for me. He was looking out for himself, but he was looking out for me too. Yeah. And yeah, he was a great friend and great teacher. So <laughs> so from that, from from your beam, obviously you practice, you, you started a, a practice at some point, and now you focus a lot on luxury high-end homes. That's right. In the Chicago area or a lot wider, where do you go? Primarily the Chicagoland area. I've done a lot of work across the country, but yeah, it's primarily primarily Chicago. Cool. I mean, Chicago, I've only ever spent a little bit of time in Chicago. One of them was on sort of a Frank Lloyd Wright odyssey and Mm -hmm. out in Oak Park and, you know, around those kind of areas, which was really fascinating. And going back to that thing of practical experience, of course, back in those days, like I was only a couple of weeks ago, I was in Taliesin West and that was built Mm -hmm. by the apprentices. Um, And you go back to there was a practical hands-on component to construction and understanding construction. Sure. Yeah. And and they were were working at a time when they were developing new materials. Plywood was brand new to that era. And they they leveraged that every to to every value they could. Yeah. So cool. eh? There's so many things like that, that through that era, there was a massive explosion in, in architecture of understanding of materials and what they could do and new inventions. and Right. right, right. Mm. So with the luxury homes you do, tell us a bit about them. Tell us a bit about what sort of clients you have, what kind of maybe styles you work in. Do you have yeah, a signature I, style? I would say if if you were to look at the the body of my work, it's probably I would I would probably refer to it mostly as coastal kind of uh-huh. East Coast style. So stone water tables, some shingle style siding, you know that that seems to be something that 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 you could probably attribute to my to my current work. But when I when I moved to Chicago, I, I started with a residential design build firm, and we were really known for our kind of our interpretations of authentic European designs. Like we did a lot of French country, French manor, cottage homes. So they're, they're for, for clients who really appreciate authenticity in, in their design. You know, many of them either you know, originate from a European country or they have, they have a house in the family that's, that's there. And so they, they have this strong connection with authentic architectural style and details. Yeah. Right. Huh. I've got a little story around that where I, I I used to work in the clothing trade. And when I worked in the clothing trade, I used to work with a guy who was a general manager of a company and a clothing company. And his name was, I'll give you his Polish name, was Jesław Unusik. Anyway, great guy, awesome guy. And uh, he hadn't traveled an awful lot, and I had with, with clothing. And one, da- one time we were headed to Germany, and he said, you know, we're really close to Poland. He said, I would love, he spoke Polish, I'd love to go back to Poland and just see, you know, some of my family there. And what we were going to Germany and I said, well, let's do it, man. Let's just hire a car and drive in there. Anyway, that was an whole nother story. We ended up getting there on a train and it was just after the, you know, like that had opened as a country from the Eastern Bloc. We got there on the train and we, <laughs> we were... 
had money stuffed in our shoes and all sorts of stuff, not knowing what the hell was going to happen, whether we we're going to be robbed or whatever. Right. We get picked up at the at the train station by one of his family. They all speak Polish. I don't speak any Polish. He spoke. He was the only English interpreter there. And we drive off out towards the countryside and we end up at this like a little countryside house, but it was a, a stone wall. And then it wasn't anything fancy. It was a stone wall with a barn and then a, a kind of house structure and another kind of barn structure at the back that created a courtyard. And we go through there and so JP, as we'll call him, just for a few news. He was a big, he was a sportsman. He, he was, he'd played really high professional level sports in mm. Australia and was is pretty revered. Still to this day, he's pretty revered. Nobody knows him as that name. That's why I'm using that name. And <laughs> he he stood there as he went through the gate. He stopped and he just burst into tears. And he's crying. He's sobbing, standing there sobbing. And so this is like this big ass adult just having a, a, a crying episode. And I'm like, man, what's up? And he pulls himself together enough and he goes, you know, my father came from here and he built this in Wagga Wagga. He built exactly this in Wagga Wagga because it was probably all he knew. He said, I, I feel like I've gone back to my family growing up home where we had yeah. chickens over here and we had the barn here and we had this here and we had this here. And just what you're saying, you know, somebody comes from one culture and they chuck it into another culture, whether it's purposeful for that or not, it'll probably survive. Right. Um, yeah, just really interesting. And it, 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 I suppose it's how in the early days architecture traveled. Sure, I think so. It, yeah, it, it traveled with the people who had lived and moved to the next next place and took the, the style and the, the features with them. And the craftsmen probably somewhat came as well, who knew how to do that work. For sure, yeah. Wow. So you ended up with a bunch of French French craftsmen doing French homes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> well, they weren't French, but they made yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They they stayed in, in Canada. What is the fascination with America and that period-style housing, and especially French? Is it, there's so many Francophiles in America that that's what happens. I'm not sure they recognize or align with the with the francophile definition, but I mean, there's just a there's an undeniable character and and beauty, a, a refinement that that came from that originated from those those styles, and and they give you such breadth. I mean, from the the casual French country home to the the more formal manor homes, uh, you get this really great range of, of of styles and materials that really start to speak about. And I think that's why people are attracted to it. it. It helps to identify their status. Right. That they, they, you know, this was, this was a manor home and. Yeah. That, you know, that, that's, that's what they identify with and they want to recreate that. And it's, it's a bit showing off. It's a bit, it's a status symbol. Yeah. It's among, got among it's their got, peers. It's got that value. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it's, I find it, you know, again, We've got, I think, a, a global homogenization of architecture thanks to Pinterest and Instagram and these kinds of things. And I, I constantly have this conversation where I go, 
is it still fit for purpose wherever it goes and is it what should be there and then what happens to local vernacular that that is of a place and mm-hmm. are we well i would say we are fast losing that and at what what social and beyond social what i'm trying to think of the thing at, at what cost of of individual and making travel valuable mm-hmm. you know i i remember saying to somebody once something about going to venice and he said i've been to the venetian and in Las Vegas, I don't need to go to Venice. Or been to Epcot. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, yeah, it's different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but why bother? Like, it can't be that much better. This is new. Right, right. (laughs) I like the food here better. (laughs) Exactly. I can get the same pizza where I can get it everywhere else in America. Um, Yeah, It's that kind of thing again. So when you want to create like a luxury home at this level authenticity becomes a part of the story and i know we were talking earlier about you know you you at one point took the whole can well the whole team to go and see what actually in france it looks like and how it happens so tell me a bit about that sure well we we'd grown the firm from i, I was the fourth one to join the firm and we grew it over a very brief short period of time to 18 and we're we're designing 20 or 30 homes a year all, you know all of those kind of period style themed homes and we realized that none of us none of the 18 of us had even been to France probably hadn't even picked up a, a book of of French homes we were we were just doing the things that we you know that, that resembled what we'd done before and it was it was popular and it was it was well received but we 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 knew that that we weren't necessarily hitting that authenticity, mm-hmm. and so we we found it valuable. We wanted to bring the, the whole team, so we we made arrangements for eighteen of us to go to to go to France, and we did a whirlwind tour starting in Paris, went up to Normandy, yep, Burgundy, Versailles, Carcassonne. So I mean we. <laughs> We did it as the lightning strike, and and uh, I don't think I don't think anyone's t- taken more photographs or video than this merry band of eighteen architects, and I, it's all it's all images of buildings and very few pictures of people to be found. But that's that's an architectural, <laughs> an architect's photo book. I was about to say nobody necessarily wants people in their architectural photographs. <laughs> move aside. <laughs> exactly. I was in uh, in Tucson a few weeks ago, Arizona, and it's got some beautiful old architecture in particular where I was. And one of the guys I was traveling with, he was wearing a a, a bright orange jacket. And so I'm taking this photo of this adobe place in a street and he's this bright orange blot in it. And he said to me, oh man, I, I, I can move out of the photo. And I said, Hey, it's an Adobe thing. I'm all good with you being in the photo. It's going to be right. okay. He's like, oh, you know, I know how uptight people get about it. <laughs> I'm okay with it, Tim. It'll be good. It'll be good. <laughs> well, we had an experience, an interesting experience too. One of the people in our group had traveled there with his his parents, and he he was taking a picture, a long distance picture of his parents against this beautiful French backdrop, oh. <laughs> and he happened to capture them being pickpocketed. No, 
<laughs> so he was waving at them, trying to let them know they're, st- they're relieving so, you of your goods. Somebody's <laughs> taking the cutting. <laughs> I love it. That's that's when close want... enough to make a difference. Yeah, right. That's when you do want people in your picture. That that level of authenticity. What did it What did it teach your team? Well, I, I, the the way I kind of characterize it, and, and I, I refer to it as the misshapen pineapple effect. Yeah. We were afraid that we, because we weren't aware of those specific details and how things were assembled, the proportions that that we were we were what I call the misshapen pineapple, and and that comes from another trip that this group took to Charleston, and Charleston's fairly famous, and they love their their odd shaped pineapples, and that that all came about because during colonial times, they recognized and used the the image of a pineapple as the symbol of welcome, but. Pineapples don't grow in in South Carolina, and they didn't have anybody there with the with the talent to to actually make the carvings there. So they were they were sending plans, instructions to the artisans in England by ship. Here's here's what a <laughs> pineapple looks like. So here's a sketch, and it's about you know this proportion. It looks like this, and they were receiving the product back from the carvers and the artisans, the sculptors, and they just they were very squat, tiny little little misshapen pineapples. So. You know, the goal was pretty clear. They wanted to to have this image of a pineapple, but because the the carvers had never seen one, they couldn't do that with an authentic style, an authentic flair. And and Charleston has embraced that weird little pineapple as as you know their own as image, a, but it's not the real thing. But they've branded it, yeah. But it's actually just misshapen instructions or poor right. instructions. Four instructions and difficult. It, the technology wasn't there. You had to put it on a ship, and yeah, several months later, maybe you'd get a response. But it's pretty cool. And in that, I mean, it it, it teaches you the value of authenticity for one. Mm-hmm. It also, thank goodness, in the case of Charleston, they actually have taken it as a brand point because right. there's a great story behind it, mm-hmm. which is fabulous you know it it makes something really interesting from it and then also it 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 goes back to putting a beam across the staircase you know like across the stairs it's like how do you get the instruction clear enough that it could be done by anybody or near nearly anybody you know like how do you get that as you said before about the fact that there's this line of who's responsible for things like the builder or the architect or the, you know, designer, the interior designer, who's taking responsibility for what, at what point and getting the clarity in the, in the planning is what I'm saying is like, is really critical if you want to get the outcome that you're expecting. Yeah, very true. And yeah, architects used to be known as the master builder, and they were involved throughout the process. They conceived the design, they were involved throughout the construction. And so there was this unifying thread throughout any project that had the master builder's involvement throughout. Over time, I think because mostly because of fear of litigation, and kind of a division of labor, architects and and builders have developed a, a bright line distinction between what they each do and and created the opportunity to kind of point foul point point out mistakes you know on, their on either side yeah on either yeah. side so that that's a real struggle that that persists today and and so you know i 
I see it as really as an opportunity. We were facing some real challenges in the industry with labor shortage, supply chain issues, which are all exacerbated by the pandemic. But though they were they were there before, and they're it's only been um, it's only been exacerbated from there. So they were there before because people aren't going to that side of the industry, or what? what why are they um, there? Or is it we don't have enough young people that are taking up the the trade, or enough young people? Full stop. That's that's what we're seeing today. That that it's not it's not a not an inspiring or a, a valued position. You know, we'd rather be influencers, social media influencers and make our livings that way, which doesn't necessarily produce anything, but it's not as fun or sexy as, as, you know, to be a, to be a carpenter or a mason or a plumber and get your hands, get your hands dirty and, and, and actually build something. It's it's just not as a, a not, not as valued or attractive a position. I, I, I get that. Like, yeah, that maybe it's the, the fact that we have so much with social media, the influence of what isn't necessarily real, you know, like mm-hmm. it's not authentic. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity to use your hands has gone down so much when I say the opportunity to actually physically build something or to work in your own garden, to right. you know, pot your own plants, to grow things, to grow flowers, to work with the law of nature, the law of the farm, you know, how long does it, what's the cycle of things? Those things are more instantaneous. You know, you meet people who have never, well, have you ever milked a cow? I have. (laughs) And you think of, you think of now how that's probably, how old were you when you milked a cow? I think I was at a camp, probably 10 years old, eight eight or 10 years old. Yeah. So you think now that's probably one of the only opportunities something like that ever happens again. And even then you were at a camp. You weren't necessarily at a farm. It was a manufactured opportunity. Right. For you to get that experience. And I go, I certainly don't think either of my girls have milked a cow. I'm going to make it happen now that I say that. Have you ever shorn a sheep? No, I haven't. Yeah, that's an exciting experience. But I'm in New Zealander. There's 20 million of them. And there was only a few million people. So you all got a chance at that. Lots <laughs> of opportunity. Yeah, lots of opportunity. You know, like and you think of all these things, you know, like in, in food preparation alone that is taken care of and people have no experience of how, how maybe that's done. And then you go to a, something bigger and especially with the cost of construction, that the piece of timber is so valuable in, in dollar value that you don't just throw them around and, you know, like it's not just something that's uh, chop that bit up and see how you go with it. It's got a high value to it. You know, somebody was saying to me the other day that they were, they were, were on site and I was looking at the stair treads he had, and I didn't design the house. I was going to give some advice on some things, but I wasn't the designer on the house. And he had these beautiful wooden stair treads. And I said, man, how beautiful. They hadn't been finished completely yet. I said, they're beautiful. And he goes, yeah, they are. He said, what do you think those cost? So he wasn't the builder, he was the owner. And I said, 
Mate, I seriously, I've really got no idea. Maybe a hundred and twenty meter, hundred and twenty dollars or something like that a meter. And he goes, try two hundred and eighty dollars a meter, and yeah. that's three feet for the Americans. And I'm like, whoa, really? And he said, well, I said, whoa, really as well. He said, but I did it all the same because it's so beautiful. Well, that staircase is eleven hundred wide to. 1100 millimeters wide so just over a meter each piece of timber that's sitting on there before it's been finished touched done anything done to it screwed in anything formed out of it that raw timber was costing 280 dollars on that piece of it just the tread top then you had an upstand you had a riser and you go you know you're probably walking over 500 dollars worth of materials on every step Mm mm-hmm and then you go, well, there's 17 steps. Mm-hmm. And you start going, there's the price of the timber. So there isn't such an opportunity for people to, I suppose, play with it like they used to. Right. right. I'm not sure that today the cost of timber is relatively exponentially higher than it was back then. I, I don't know. But I just go, you suddenly go, you go down to the hardware store and you buy timber and you go, man, we didn't get, you've got a small bit in the car, but we've spent a lot of money. Sure. Yeah. And I, you know, I've, I've always come at it this from, it's kind of baked in the value, the cost of, of the materials is, is a baked in commodity because it, it, you know, you had, you didn't have a choice. If, yeah. you, if you had to build a wall, you had to buy the material. Yeah. And I, I was talking with a prospective client and she, she was an investor. This was very early in the pandemic roughly you know fall of 2020 and she called me up and she she had a very pragmatic outlook on on design and construction she said i'm i'm eager to move right now but i'm watching lumber futures and they are 1600 times what they were before the pandemic so this is enormous spike. Mm-hmm. just on <clears throat> wow raw bulk lumber and I and you could watch that. I, I would go to Home Depot and, and just look at the price of a stud. That was kind of my 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 bearing benchmark, my bearing point, my benchmark. And I knew you could you could buy a stud for a, a buck and a half before the pandemic, and it was twelve fifteen dollars at a at a at the at the height of the pandemic. And it's it's come down significantly. What's it but, come back to now, roughly? Do you know? I think last I looked, it was right around three dollars. So we've gotten pretty close to. Yeah, it's probably only, still only what three it times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. doubled. Yeah, <laughs> <clears throat> that's an interesting. That's an interesting little benchmark as well. That, yeah, that supply and demand suddenly been met, and so that lumber price has dropped away. It's right, and it it plays in. I I work in two different, well, in, in a range of of product types. I do a lot of luxury homes, but back back in my high school days, my my involvement with Habitat for Humanity and another group called Appalachian Service Project really did a lot to well put me into an exposure of of those who are less fortunate, and and the the ASP experience, the Appalachian Service Project experience was was really adept at at getting letting informing those who are going to come down and serve people of Appalachia. That there's a whole different there's a there was a cultural sensitivity that they knew was important. So things like twelve year olds maybe chewing tobacco, and we were made aware of that. So we didn't cast any judgments or react negatively if we saw that. That's that's their culture, and 
and you know we were, we're guests in their in their community and so it was really important to understand that we didn't want to we didn't want to be bad guests or or yeah or insensitive or over judgmental or any of those things yeah so that really served me quite well just coming at every, every new community I, I go to every every new relationship you know, I, I try to come at that with clear eyes of, you know, they have their experience and I have mine and I'm, I'm here to learn about you yep. without, without judgment. Yep. Um, yep. But that, yeah, that, that really kicked off. So I've, I've been involved with, with affordable housing since long, long, long ago. And it's been a, it's been a really great component to my own practice. I like to, I like to loop that in and, and engage with my, my clients, my, my luxury clients to help them understand that, you know, this is another part of my mission is to help help people have warmer, safer, and drier homes. I, I want to dig into this piece because yeah. I know it's something you're really passionate about because you could just sit back and enjoy doing the luxury homes and, you know, keep turn a blind eye to the other. However, it's a driver for you. And I, I know that from various conversations. How did it start? And where is it now? And I want you to tell the bits about, you know, like being able to take relatively unskilled labor and get them to be able to build something. And we're going back to the milk the cow kind of thing. It's like, how how does that experience benefit and how can the authenticity of it? And then the sense of achievement, pride and capability you know the growing capacity and capability of the human that happens along with somebody ends up with a roof over their head right yeah so my first experience was with asp roughly 16 or 18 years old i'd already started working as a carpenter as a part-time carpenter so i had in my group traveling to appalachia i was i was probably the most skilled carpenter in the group and and that was just my part-time experience so I was I was assigned as a crew leader in our <laughs> promoted above your station, possibly well beyond my, my station <laughs> capability. But you know, we got to make it happen. Exactly, uh, so you still stepped up. Yeah, that's right. So we were assigned a house that had suffered. They had a coal storage bin at the top of a hill, and that bin had given way, and all the coal had slid down the hill and wiped out their foundations. The house was kind of sitting on an angle because the, the the coal had wiped out the foundation. So I was in there, to, the homeowner had, had shoveled all the coal out and our, our little group of good, good hearted people showed up. <laughs> and as the crew leader, I, I kind of made, made the assignments. And so we, 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 we poured a new foundation, a new, new pad. We jacked up the floor to get it back to level and, and really just, you know, find it, we were able to leverage the the talents of our, of our volunteer group to make the most out of that. And we were able to, to restore the house. And, and the, the, the funny thing that happened, my, my, my math teacher was on that trip and he was up in the kitchen. He was trying to trim out a door with casing. And I was in the basement operating the jack, raising the floor up and I could hear him. And he was very fastidious. He would, he would take his measurements, <laughs> go twice, measure twice, I, cut I, once. I wear it. Yeah. He, he'd go outside and cut the piece. And I was inside raising the floor up. And, uh, Jack and Jack I could hear Jack him. And... I just measured this. He had to cut it three or four times before we both realized what was going on. And so at we came out was, and had a good laugh about it. At least it was getting shorter on picking. Right. Yeah. He could just make another cut. 
So uh, that was my that was my kind of indoctrination and, and and initiation into that world of how do we how do we build with good hearted maybe not yeah. experienced maybe not trained people but folks that that really want to make a difference to those that are that are struggling. That's I, I love that story that goes with that though where, where he's trying to do it so perfectly, and and I also love the fact that your math teacher was there, actually doing the same thing as you, right. Yeah, it's all about community. Yeah. Let the dog out. Yeah, I think that that's a a really fabulous like piece of the story where you've got this, I suppose, opportunity to make community, and you go back to thinking about back in you know settler days, the whole town helped build the house. Sure. Raise the barn. Yeah. Yeah. That whole thing was just part of what happened. And so then you go from the Appalachian Service Project. Tell me the next steps. What happened after that? So that was that was an actual hands on construction project, kind of a limited. We spent a week in in Appalachia and and we, we did several trips like that, donating tools, materials and vehicles to help support that effort. And then I get you know that that continues over time. My wife was is works for a, a another company owned by previously owned by three brothers who were really passionate about Habitat for Humanity. And right mm-hmm. after Katrina, the three of them flew down to, to make a make a difference. And they they were assigned a house and they they worked for a full week on that house and then flew back to Chicago and enjoyed the experience so much they decided they wanted to go back again the next year. So a full year later they returned. And they said, well, nothing's been done on that house you worked on last year. So just pick up where you left off and we'll uh, we'll keep moving it forth, which was really frustrating to them. Uh, So they decided they wanted to be more proactive about that. So they created a group called Solid Rock Carpenters. And uh, they they learned that I was an architect married to one of their employees. And (laughs) that was an ideal situation for them. So I'm now on the board of Solid Rock Carpenters. And and we have really worked on our, our, our mission is to to create affordable housing, but we also want to engage the community. So we have probably 3,500 volunteers in the Chicago, over over time, oh, in the Chicagoland area that have all contributed to building. And we, we use kind of a panelized construction method. So we build individual walls and, and then load them onto trucks and ship them where they want to go. That's kind of where this whole thing started. And then I I could see the the inefficiencies and the the inaccuracies that were part of that very hands on kind of craftsman is you know kind of a craftsman method but it was you had to you had to create it one at a time each and every time and so our first step the first thing I did was to create a a a, a, a template on a on a piece of one by four lumber and so I, I created a stud layout for each and every wall section. And then we had our skilled team use drywall squares, rafters or drywall squares to to mark up multiple plates at once. So we could do multiple as many as five homes at a time. Right. And that was all very laborious marker rent or marker yep. marker across the, the plates. And it was fraught with, you know, f- people get fatigued and lose, you know, lose track of what they're doing. So there's lots of scribbles and you know, there's a lot of shortcomings in that in that scenario. <laughs> But still, we're we're building good houses, and 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 kind of as a side note, we had young kids that really wanted to be involved, ten, eight, and ten years old, and we have a master union carpenter on our team, and 
he knew the issue was the length of the nails. The kids had a hard time driving the 16 framing nails, 16 D framing nails. And so with a hammer, I'm picking with a hammer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we don't, we, we don't a... use any nail guns or power tools. We operate a really safe. So it's all hand, hand. Uh, I was about tools. to, yeah. Like it's hand driven tools. So yeah, yeah, we keep all the saws in a, in a sequestered area. So we don't run into that issue. We try to create yeah. as safe an environment as possible, but he knew that driving the big nails was tough for the kids. So he, he decided all on his own that we we're going to build trusses because you could use little tiny nails for the gussets. So we cut plywood gussets and glue and we had a whole trust building operation, which was amazing. And just, he had, he had dozens of kids just hammering away and just, you know, if, you, if there's an open space of wood, just drive a nail into it. And it was, yeah, right. That was the assignment. So we, we trucked those down. We built five homes in Bogalusa, Louisiana, around a cul-de-sac. And that was a, a huge success. In two weeks, we built five homes. Wow. Wow. In two weeks, you built five homes. Mm-hmm. That's something else. It was it was quite something. It, you know, it, it could could we have done that more cost effectively? Yeah. I yeah, mean, we sent sure. down 60 people on on a flight from Chicago to New Orleans and dragged all our tools with us and shipped down all these materials. And it was it was funny that the community would show up. They would they would drive by on their lawnmowers and they would, you know, these crazy Yankees who were doing building houses in our backyard. It was just such a foreign concept to them. The building department hadn't issued a building department and hadn't issued a building permit in two years. Yeah. Wow. Suddenly we're building five homes all at once. So we had the building inspector sitting on the site. Every time we need an inspection, you just raise your hand and the inspector would rush over and sign off on it or tell you need to drive a couple more nails. And So they were very helpful and compliant. Like or when I say compliant, not necessarily compliant, you were being compliant, but, but they were really helpful and really supportive. Very supportive. And, and, you know, they, they were impressed. We we went in with the sensitivity that we knew there was you know need for hurricane clips and uh-huh. all the proper construction details. And they were, they were really astonished that, you know, they were walking through houses, checking all the boxes that they, you know, that were important to them and finding that most of that work was already done. That's fantastic. That's really yeah. cool. So yeah, it, design wise, it really met the place and met the environment. Yep. Met the yep. environment. It's it's still super labor intensive and all that that whole time. So this, you know, this has happened over a course of years. And all along I've been just musing that we could probably print, we could be more, we could be better prepared and more accurate if we were able to print these full size, these uh-huh. label uh-huh. kind of label templates that that show the stud layout for every for every wall. And so probably four, five years ago had a conversation with a, a, a commercial print operation and talked with them about my, my vision for that. And they said, well, we can, we can print anything on Tyvek and it can be as long as you need it. So that was the kind of the initiation. We started building these, these template packages that we print a top and a bottom plate for every single wall in the house onto Tyvek because it's durable, it's water resistant and, and no longer do we have the markers out there. We just have a, an army of people that have cut lumber and we staple the, the Tyvek down to the plate. It stays there permanently and they... It and, never and moves. It never, never moves. moves. You just nail and straight it has, through it. It's nailed straight through it, yeah. And it, it has it has a number of functions, not only the stud layout, but it has an identity. There's 27 uh-huh. walls in each each house. So we have a kind of a labeling strategy that guides the people as they build the walls. They know where to bring them to the house and drop them off. So we have exterior walls, interior walls. We try really try to make everything into a component 
so we can further engage people. And do you color code as well? We do. Yeah. So, uh, and and there's some interesting things that we learned there. So pre-cut studs come from the mill with a, with a blue paint on the end, but we didn't, I but didn't you, clean. But you guys used yellow. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, yeah. I didn't clue into it until we got on site and said, oh, you know what? If we just change our labels to blue, yep. the, yep. the pre-cut studs are already painted. So Those we, we guys made have it, already made started it. the process for us. Exactly. So we, we learned from that. We, we developed a kind of a color coding system for the various size studs. And we, it was a very rigorous and, and fully developed system. And then one of my fellow board members who loves the system and he, he, he's fully supportive of it, but we, we were, we're on a job site and he, he came over to me and said, you know, this is beautiful. This is a great system, but one in 12 men are colorblind. So we have 300 people volunteering on this job site. We've, we've got a, one in 12 as, as colorblind. As colorblind can't really read the system. So, <laughs> so what did you do to overcome that? Well, we haven't really addressed or been able to address that yet. We basically, you have to pair them up with somebody who, who sees color. But we're we're considering patterns, a cross pattern. Yeah, or a, yeah. I was uh, going to say asymmetrical shapes. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I I spent a few years working teaching innovation, and you know, like things that only go together a certain way is one way of doing it. But when you've got the other, then that's why color coding is so sending a message by that. And then the other is is often by an, an individual shape and creating sure. a, a glossary of that. And if you can do that, can you steal it from another industry that has already created it? Right. Would be right. my my first places to look. You know, is there a standard that exists in everyday something else? And if there is, then can you adapt the standard to that? Yeah, we, and we have the inter- interesting experience. So that the 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 Louisiana homes were a habitat project, and habitat is highly affected by their funding. So <laughs> that that particular chapter of habitat had received a grant, a, a Red Cross grant, part of the recovery from, from Katrina. And they thought, you know, just based on their history, they thought, oh, this grant, that's five homes, that'll that'll occupy us for 10 years. <laughs> and our group swooped in and did all five in, a, in, in two weeks. Yeah. So <laughs> we kind of put them out of business, but they, you know, they're, they're searching for more funding and that's, that's part of the, part of the game. But as we've, as we've kind of harnessed that system, we, I've, I've re-engaged, our group re-engaged with Appalachian Service Project because they have, they have a more, I guess, holistic approach. They, they, they have a fundraising component that's, they know based oh, right. on demand, yep. they have to go after a certain amount of money. And so you know, when, when I first engaged with them as a high schooler, it was all remodeling, restoration mm-hmm. work, but they've, they've essentially exhausted the stock of housing that needs to be fixed. So they, they they had a need to build new homes and somebody made somebody made the introduction and said, we know this group in Chicago that does new home construction. And so we got put together and they they paired us up with a project in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, which is the home of the Greenbrier Resort, which is a whole other story on itself. <laughs> uh, but, so they partner with Home Depot Foundation, uh-huh. who does several fundraising events every year. I think they do seven fundraising events every year. So it's it's a few days of of programming, and then they like to do a service project. So they brought us in to work with their uh, vendor volunteers to build new homes. So yeah, we, right. we put together a package of twelve sets of pre-cut lumber labels, 
and they delivered us 350 hardware hardware vendors to build the 12 homes and we got all 12 all all 12 sets of homes nailed together and swept the field for nails in an hour and a half you serious and these these folks don't drive nails for a living they sell saws and hammers and they sell materials they don't use them wow well, it's going back to what we started out with earlier there and going, what an opportunity for architectural students. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and an opportunity for architecture. If if you if you consider architecture as it's traditionally understood, it's the creation of space and the relationship between spaces. But that's that's fairly limited. And and if we if all we do is produce the typical set of drawings, then it's a lost opportunity for those who aren't trained to to interpret them and, and build from them. Uh-huh. And so that's what this this labeled technology lets us do. We are able to engage people that aren't trained as carpenters, have never swung a hammer before. We've given them a build by color code system yep. that, that lets them do that effectively and and builds a good house, good quality house. So how does that relate back to, so that's in, in affordable housing, how does that relate back to, say, luxury architecture? It's very it's a very similar challenge in that we're, we're we're all pulling from the same labor pools and material pools. So even if it's a well-funded project, they can't be frivolous with their acquisition and use of materials yeah. and they're still competing for ta- you know trade talent, carpenters and masons. And so if we can give them better instructions, better directions on how to build, they're going to make fewer mistakes. We can use less qualified, less trained people and hopefully get them trained up and and practicing so it will improve their skills as well and and ultimately we hope that we're going to entice others to gain an interest in that in the industry and and you know become a sure. carpenter become a mason. sure and it it obviously ends up with being able to start a you know like for apprentices all those kinds of things to lead into the industry that is really valuable like really really sure. valuable i always look around anything that is being made by humans and i have i have this phrase which is just human endeavor human endeavor amazes me like what people are capable of and then the thing that we obviously have made machinery that takes care of a lot of things to make it quicker and easier and you know like we we went from scratching dirt to now we use a digger or whatever it is and there's all these different disciplines that happen that allows us more speed and ideally makes it more affordable. I don't know that it has just yet, but it makes it more affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, but you look at everything that's put together by humans and the human endeavor and it is just phenomenal, like phenomenal. But we can't afford to lose those skills or those even even if you look at 3D printed houses and stuff and design becomes phenomenally more important at that point because the machinery will create the home right. it's it's in its infancy still i mean it, it's happening but it's it's still not there yet in in mass and yet like icon will they're working on their space projects already that 
Icon 3D, they're working on being able to build in space with on the moon or Mars or wherever, but on, in the other planets with 3D printing. Right. And you look at this sort of that will that will satisfy a piece of the market for a piece of time. And then on the other side of it, the other part still has to grow as well, the more traditional type things. And we don't want to lose those traditional values and get, giving people a lead into them, I think, is really amazing because we will always need to house people. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued by the by the 3D printed houses. I saw somewhere there's a there's a housing shortage of a million houses that, that there are a million families that are without a house globally. Yep. Yep. And our traditional methods are, are not equipped to, to meet that need. And so even now, even our materials aren't right. So the, the, the promise of the 3d printed house is, is just fabulous Mm. because it's, it uses local materials. It's highly automated. So I think there's a lot of hope and and promise there, especially for, you know, third world and underprivileged communities. Uh, A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. It's icon 3d, I would say probably one of the global leaders in the, in the pack out of Austin, Texas. They yeah. certainly have done a whole lot of low cost or, or affordable housing projects. They've started doing those things. And then they also are embracing the fact that this is a full architectural system. Mm-hmm. And so they have Flato designed one of their first houses and Big, the architectural firm Big, is designing another one for out in Marfa. It'll be a hotel complex for out in Marfa, Texas with Liz mm-hmm. Lambert's group. So yeah, there's some interesting stuff that's going on in that area. They're they're exploring the high end of it, probably to ben- benefit the low end of it. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. So tell me, you were just in New Orleans, I know, because I was hoping to be there with you, but I wasn't. Did you go back and visit the houses, the um, five houses that were built? Not on this trip, but we have gone back with with my Solid Rock Carpenter group, and it was it was heartwarming and amazing. It was very funny that we 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 went there unannounced and and the and and the, we were welcomed in. Kids were at school, but they they didn't know we were coming. And suddenly, twenty five people are in their kitchen and living room, and and she said, "Well, you know, the, the, sorry about the kids. That you know, their 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 books aren't put away or whatever it was." And all the moms in our group were taking taking pictures of how well, oh, uh, how beautiful the house was, how kept. beautiful the house was kept, and. They wanted to show their kids, this is what you're supposed to do. This is how you should look after a house. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. The, the privilege, the privilege mm-hmm. of, of being housed, it, it, which it shouldn't be a privilege. It should be, it's a basic human need. Yeah, so, for sure. Mm. Well, I've got one last question, which is going to be, it's, it's one of my standard questions. One last project. After that, you're done. You can't pick up your pencil again. You can't influence anything. What is the project that you would leave as your number one point of legacy and on this planet? That's that's a difficult one. I guess my my priority is to is to serve and inspire others to to continue making the world and life a better place. So I I think. I don't know what the structure would be, but I kind of think of the like the Shaolin temples that they they build back and forth to teach the the students the the methods to build a build that temple. So I would I would hope to build a project that would inspire 
others to design and build even better things. I love that. I love that. Our next podcast I want to talk about is going to be about affordable housing for resort towns so that there is a place for, you know, resort towns where people want ski fields, you know, beach towns, et cetera, where people want to be able to visit and they have staffing house shortages, which probably does a couple of good things. One is, is it means that there's less people that can go and visit because you can't overexpand it too quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other side of it, it also means that it becomes elitist, which isn't so good. You know, like it's it, we want it to be the the beauty of the world and and environment to be accessible but respected, I suppose. So I'd love to I'd love to talk about how this whole affordable housing thing and creating community, a positive community that's got depth and has got education and health and well-being at its heart, how we I get think that. that's crucial. That that's yeah. that's so important to me. You know, if if things were left to the to the normal the more normal market conditions, most developers are going to seek the the most profitable solution. Yeah. And there's not a holistic thought about how to, how does this ecosystem, how does this, how, how do we have enough people to serve those that want to vacation there and yeah. make that experience yeah. true and, and, and good. So yeah, I'm, I'm passionate about topics just like that. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk on that one soon for Great. sure, man. Mark, absolutely fabulous conversation. And I love the Shaolin Temple thing as well, where it's a constant learning and a constant creation process so that the skills and it's not just the hand skills it's the mind skills that mindset of what we are doing and how we are touching things right i go i'm keen to see when that project happens i don't think it should be your last (laughs) 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 thank you so much for joining me thanks adrian It was brilliant, and we will talk soon, man. Have a great day. I love it. Cheers, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, If it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Why not just leave it as it is and see how they answer? And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, 
they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.